Well, friends, it is wonderful to be back among our church family this morning. We were glad to get away last week and get a little R&R in San Diego uh, and recharge our batteries a little bit, but we are always so thankful to return and to, to minister to the ones that we love. Uh, last week, as we were in San Diego, we made the obligatory visit to SeaWorld. Uh, and one of the first things we did when we walked in the gates of SeaWorld was to visit the otter exhibit. And uh, it just so happened when we walked up to the otter exhibit that there was a special presentation going on there where, the, where they were feeding the otters and telling uh, all those who were there a little bit more about them. And, and during that the presentation about the otters, uh, something caught my attention. Um, the lady on the mic said, otters don't like to share. Uh, they're highly possessive about their food, so that you'll notice that as we're feeding them, we're giving each otter their own special block of ice with shellfish in the middle, which they'll bite and claw down to, until they get to get to the fish. If we toss the shellfish just into the water, we'd risk uh, some of the otters not getting the nutrients that they need because they're so possessive and, and selfish. And so sure enough, as we watched this, each otter was kind of floating on its back in the water with its own personal designated block of ice nibbling down to, to get to the food inside. Uh, apparently, otters are selfish about their shellfish. Friends, as I prepared to preach this week, I, I couldn't help but think how unlike otters, Christians are supposed to be. How unlike the otter exhibit, the dynamics of a local church must be. Being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus means orienting our lives outward toward others, just as Jesus did. And it, it means that instead of the I'll get mine attitude of the world around us, the church should be marked by a selfless love that, that labors for the spiritual good of others, especially other Christians. In short, all Christians should be busy about the work of discipling others. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 28? Matthew 28, it's on page 835 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you need a Bible, do please avail yourself of, of that Bible this morning. Friends, this morning, if you're new with us, we are departing from our normal pattern of preaching, which uh, typically is to take a specific particular passage of Scripture, usually in the sequence of an entire book of the Bible, uh, expose its meaning, and then apply it to our lives. We call this type of preaching expositional preaching, uh, kind of the main diet of our preaching. We want the Word of God to set the agenda for the sermon, not the preacher. We believe that this approach of, uh, to the Word of God best feeds and strengthens the church. But occasionally, uh, we think it's useful to look at what the Scripture has to say about a, a certain topic, to kind of zero in like a, a laser beam on a specific target in order to grow in that particular area. And we call this type of preaching topical preaching. You know, done right, topical preaching is still grounded in and saturated by the Scripture, but unlike expositional preaching, topical preaching starts with a topic, not a text. So that's that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, we're going to return to an occasional series that we've been working our way through over the last year and a half or so, and that series is called The Disciplines of a Godly Church. 
the patterns or rhythms of activities of a church that enable us to increasingly glorify God and showcase His glory to the watching world. So over the last year and a half, we've, we've looked at the priority of gathering together, of listening together, of praying together, and of singing together. So if you missed any of those sermons, friends, let me encourage you to go to our website and listen to them. They're kind of, I think, foundational, flag-planting type of sermons in the life of our church that we would love every member to hear and by grace to heed. Uh, Today we'll be looking together at the discipline of discipling together and next week of serving together. But before we dig in this morning, I think it'd probably be helpful to define some terms and to make sure that we're on the same page. What do I mean by discipling? Discipling or discipler probably aren't words that we use all that often in everyday language, are they? They're kind of Christian lingo a bit. So let me give you what I think is a working definition of discipling. Discipling, friends, is simply helping others to follow Jesus. It's intentionally working for others' spiritual good so that they increasingly follow Christ and are conformed more closely to his image. Discipleship is probably a word maybe we better know, but that concerns the process of my or your following Jesus. Discipling or making disciples is kind of a a subset of discipleship specifically geared to helping others follow Christ more faithfully, okay? All right, now that we've defined things, let me also give you a couple of biblical assumptions that I'm making this morning as we approach this topic. First, every Christian is a disciple of Jesus. Every Christian is a disciple of Jesus. Disciples are not just the original 12 that followed Christ during his earthly ministry. Being a disciple is not some sort of special class of Christian all-stars, you know? Uh, It's not like the elite class, the few, the proud, the disciples. No, no, it sums up what it means to be a Christian. In fact, long before faith followers of Jesus were called Christians, they were called disciples even after Jesus was gone. So if you were to read the first uh, several chapters of the book of Acts, which is the history of that early church after Jesus' ascension, you would see repeatedly that even after Jesus was gone, his followers, those who had repented of their sins and trusted in him, were called disciples. Over and over, Acts refers to individual believers in this way, as well as those who comprised uh, the churches. And then finally, when you get to Acts 11, the author Luke tells us that uh, tells us about the church in Antioch at Syria, and he writes in Acts 11:26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, friends, the Christian life is the disciples life. It's for all those who have heeded the call of Jesus, just like Simon and Andrew and James and John and Levi and all the rest there in the beginning when Jesus walked the earth. It's to hear the call of Jesus summoning your allegiance to him. And through a supernatural work of grace in your life, you you turn from your sin and you trust in him alone to rescue you from sin's eternal guilt and from its dominion in your life. By grace, you commit to follow Christ as your Lord and your master, no matter the cost. Friends, have you done that? Are you a disciple of Jesus? 
To be a disciple is to grow in your love for Christ and to delight to, to obey him so that you might become further and further like him. If you call yourself a Christian and have no interest in following Christ Jesus at whatever personal cost to you that may require, friends, you've misunderstood Christianity. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. But here's the thing. When Jesus gave at the, at the end of his, of his earthly ministry what we know to be the Great Commission, we're going to look at it in just a moment, before he ascended to heaven, he didn't say, go and be a disciple. No, those 11 that were there on the mountain with him were already his disciples and they would continue to be. Instead, what did Jesus say? Well, let's read the text together. Matthew 28, Matthew 28, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, what did Jesus want to ring in his disciples' ears when he was gone? What did he want them to spend their time and their energy on? And what did he want them to give their lives toward after he ascended to the Father? He didn't commission them to avenge his death to forcefully take down the Jewish religious establishment or insurrect the Roman occupiers, as you might expect a wronged king to demand. No, rather, Jesus charged them to dedicate their lives to helping others follow him. He charged his disciples to make other disciples who would follow him, just as he had done while he was here on the earth. When Jesus gave this great commission and charge, friends, I don't see any distinction between those to whom his commission was given and to those whom it wasn't. Now, some have tried to say over the years uh, of the church that this, this commission is only for the 11 who were with him on that day. And of course, yes, the 11 apostles and then the addition of later of the apostle Paul as the 12th played a foundational role in this, this task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus, of establishing churches, communities of disciples upon this apostolic gospel. But think about it. The promise there at the end of the text that we just read that Jesus will be with his disciples to the end of the age, friends, that, that, that promise is still very active, isn't it? Those original disciples are long dead, and yet the promise of Jesus remains. We carry this promise dear to our hearts, don't we, of his enduring presence until the end. So this can only mean that Jesus wants every disciple, every Christian, to help others follow Jesus, both in initial evangelism and then later in discipling into Christian maturity. The charge is for every believer in all times. Friends, discipling is fundamental to Christianity. It's fundamental. Some of you may have played sports uh, growing up, so you know what I mean when I say the fundamentals of the game. These are the, the core skills that you need to play any sport, right? So I uh, played the most basketball and baseball when my, when my dad 
taught me how to shoot a basketball. He, he, he told me, hey, John, you don't shoot the ball with two hands. Your weak hand just guides the ball. Your strong hand's what shoots the ball. And when you release it, you don't have a stiff wrist. I want you to act like, and when you imagine there's a cookie jar up on the, the top shelf, and when you shoot, I want you to reach in the cookie jar. So that's how, that's how I learned how to shoot the basketball. And you know why my dad to- told me that? Because his dad, my papa, was a basketball coach for 30 years, and he had taught him that's how you shoot the ball. You reach in the cookie jar. Guess what? How I taught Cooper how to shoot the ball. Cooper, reach into the, the cookie jar. These are the fundamentals of what it means to, to play the right way. So friends, what the scripture reveals is that a f- the fundamental um, activity, one of the fundamental activities to biblical Christianity is being a follower of Jesus and helping others to do the same. And in this way, we follow the pattern of our king. Just think about it. Jesus did not distance himself from his people. He moved toward us. He voluntarily entered our world. He assumed our weakness. Our God stepped down from his eternal glory and into the inglorious affairs of earthly life. Jesus removed every boundary and barrier between him and us. He called and then formed disciples to follow him. Our task mirrors his We don't work to make disciples of ourselves, but to pray and labor so that the Spirit would call and form disciples of Christ Jesus and so be presented mature and blameless on the last day. Let me give you the main idea of this sermon this morning, not from a particular text, but from the composite of the text that we'll look at this morning. Here's the main idea. The Christian life is the discipling life pursued within the local church. The Christian life, it's the discipling life. It's the life of helping others follow Jesus pursued within the local church. We'll look at three aspects of this discipling life this morning. Number one, the context. Number two, the task. And number three, the aim. The context, the task, the aim. Friends, I hope what we'll discover today is that every Christian is not only to be oriented toward others in love, just kind of generically or broadly, but to be working actively, strategically, intentionally toward others' spiritual good. And I pray that God's word might encourage us to that end. Number one, the context. What is the God-ordained context of discipleship and discipling? Is there one? Uh, So much of the ethos of today's American Christianity seems to promote the tailoring of one's following Jesus to however best fits the individual. I run into professing believers all the time, seriously, in Goodyear, that claim to be following Jesus, but when you press them and you ask them, well, what what does this look like in your life? They start talking about nonprofits or parachurch organizations they're involved with, Bible studies they attend, social ministries they're giving their, their lives to and their time to. So the question is, do we have that type of leash to decide the specific context of following Jesus and helping others to do the same? Well, well, yes and no. I mean, certainly we wouldn't say that devoting our time and energies to make disciples through a parachurch organization is sinful, but in fact, the Bible does reveal the very center, the primary context of discipling and discipleship. The Bible, the New Testament, reveals a certain God-ordained greenhouse in which God's people are to grow and flourish and help others to do the same. That greenhouse 
is the local church. The church is the natural environment for discipling. In fact, I would go so far to say that the local church is the most basic discipler of Christians. So you feel free to turn to these passages. I'm going to reference them briefly, and then we're going to look at some other passages here later in the sermon. If you recall from our study in Matthew, uh, Jesus had been discipling the 12 for nearly two years when finally in Caesarea Philippi, Simon Peter accurately confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God. And immediately, what does Jesus do? According to Matthew 16, he promises to build his church. He puts an authority structure in place. He gives Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom of heaven, heaven's authority on earth to affirm or deny people's confessions of faith, just like Jesus had done with Peter. And then later in Matthew 18, Jesus places this same authority, the power of the keys into the the hands of the local church. Remember, we look at this in December. Jesus describes the, a situation in which uh, someone who confesses to be a disciple of, uh, of Jesus by faith uh, is living in unrepentant sin that contradicts his confession. And so Jesus gives the church, the, the two or three who gather in his name, heaven's authority to o- affirm or disaffirm a disciple's confession, whether it's credible. Friends, we might say this, that the church has Jesus' authority to affirm a right confession of Christ and credible confessors of Christ. The local church possesses King Jesus' authority to affirm or disaffirm who is a disciple and therefore who who belongs in the body. This is kind of a a built-in accountability structure, isn't it, for discipling and discipleship? Well, how does the church do this? How does the church do this? Well, look at the text. Again, Matthew 28. Look at Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See what's happening here? How do we affirm disciples and say, yes, we believe he or she is following Christ Jesus by faith? When Jesus says clear, it's in baptism. As we were to keep reading the, the, the New Testament, we would say by extension, the Lord's Supper. Baptism binds the one disciple to the many disciples in the church, and the Lord's Supper makes the many disciples one. This is what we understand church membership to be. That's why when we keep reading the New Testament, you get to a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul commands the, the church in Corinth to exercise the type of corrective discipline that Jesus called for in Matthew 18. What did they do? They removed the unrepentant man from the Lord's table, right? They excommunioned him. They excommunicated him. In other words, each local church is obligated to oversee the discipleship of its members to work to ensure that each member, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and followed him in the the waters of baptism, endures an act of love and obedience and holiness. And how does this happen? Well, the text tells us. 
It happens in large part as pastors and elders teach the congregation to do all that Christ has commanded, just as it says there in the Great Commission. We, as elders, as pastors, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for discipling by preaching the Word of God, praying that the Spirit activates the Word in the lives of believers. I, I heard one brother pastor call this, this whole thing that I've been talking about the, the church's skeletal structure. The local church preaches and teaches the word to grow disciples. It affirms disciples through baptism in the Lord's Supper and church membership, and through excommunication removes anyone whose life flagrantly contradicts his or her profession. Okay, we made it through the skeleton. Now, inside that skeletal structure are the flesh and, and muscle relationships of the church. In a church's life together, we love one another as Christ loved us. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ as Steve taught us last week so helpfully. We help one another follow Jesus. In other words, friends, the local church is the God-ordained greenhouse where disciples grow. It's where we work and labor for the spiritual good of other disciples. We, we walk together as pilgrims on the way to the celestial city as, as Bunyan so vividly pictured in Pilgrim's Progress. Church is not an event that we attend once a week, but a people in whom we invest our time and energy and seek to love and help and shape and mold and encourage and correct and admonish and spur on. Beloved, do you see how the local church and its membership provide the necessary contours and accountability for discipling the flourish? Think of it this way. What if you found yourself in a scenario where you were discipling two Christians? Let's call them Frank and Bobby, okay? Or if you're a, you're a woman, Francis and Bobby with an I, okay? I don't know. <laughs> Frank is a member of RGC with whom you've covenanted to help oversee his discipleship to Jesus. Bobby is a, is a fellow Christian, but not part of our, of our church, so while you care for Bobby, you've not made the same promises to him that you have to Frank because you don't share the same bread and drink from the same cup at the Lord's table as you do with Frank. You're not part of the same local expression of the body of Christ. So with Frank, with Frank, you can discuss the morning sermon with him. You can observe closely his progress in the faith and his, his vibrancy or lack thereof in serving the body. If Frank would ever start to go off the rails spiritually, you'd be part of that built-in accountability process in the church that God has placed in his life to help correct him. But it's not so with Bobby, is it? If Bobby were an unrepentant sin, you'd certainly want to correct and encourage him and warn him, but you'd have to leave the final responsibility in the hands of Bobby's church if he's part of one. In other words, friends, meaningful church membership is the fertile soil of discipling because it heightens our ownership of the responsibility and our awareness of the responsibility to help one another follow Jesus. Let's look at a few texts where we see this in action. Okay, first, let's turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, it's on page 1007. Okay, friends, we're going to be turning a lot this morning, so get your turning fingers ready. Hebrews 10, page 1007.
Let's pick it up in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, obviously we have a need to persevere to the end, to the final day. This world is so full of hostility and temptation and snares. How will we persevere? Well, the writer of Hebrews indicates that we need each other. <laughs> we need each other to persevere. The instruction then is that each of us actively consider how we might stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near. That sounds a lot like discipling, doesn't it? Yeah, because it is. That sounds like helping other Christians follow Jesus. That sounds like working for the spiritual good of others. So how will we ensure that that happens? Well, the text says, by not neglecting to meet together, or to put it positively, by gathering regularly together on the Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters, the most important discipling activity of the local church is not small groups. It's not house to house. It's what we call our small groups. The most important discipling activity of the church is the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day. It's here where we gather to read and to listen to God's Word. That's what you've done today as you come to church. We pray biblical prayers together. We sing biblical songs and celebrate the ordinances together. These are the ordinary means of grace that God has designed to feed our souls and to grow us in grace. I love how one author put it. He said, the biblical pattern for church ministry moves from the pulpit to the people, from the gathering to the scattering, never the other way around. All other ministries should be subservient to and ordered around the church's main gathering. It's intended to be the roaring river that gives life and direction to all the other discipling tributaries of the church. The order is never reversed. Such a helpful statement. Our Sunday gathering, along with our prayer gathering, should be the fountainhead of fellowship and relationship building. So you might think of it as we gather, kind of it's both a discipling event and a discipling mobilization meeting. This is why we often encourage you to come early and to stay late, right? Don't conceive of, of church as merely a, a service that you book a ticket to and then leave, but as a family gathering where you intentionally look to encourage and love and and hatch plans to how to minister to your fellow brothers and sisters throughout the week when the church scatters. Friends, do you have this mindset? Seriously, is this your mindset about Christianity? Do you view the church merely as an event to attend or as a family to love and as a body to build? Do you approach our weekly gatherings as a consumer? What's in it for me? Or as an investor? How can I minister to others? Is it part of your mindset to strategically, intentionally spend yourself for the spiritual good of your fellow Christians? Are you an otter Christian? Or are you an others Christian? Is your life invested in the brothers and sisters of our church? So for instance, when I ask a question like this, who in the body are you right now spiritually concerned about? Who in the body right now are you spiritually concerned about? Who comes to your mind? Does anyone come to your mind? 
Whose spiritual good are you praying for? Who among this body are you investing in? If no one comes to your mind, well, then one of two things is true. Either you're, well, I guess one of three things. Either you're, you're not part of the church, uh, you're brand new with us, and so you haven't had time to develop relationships yet, or, friends, if you've been here with us for a while, I would submit that if, if nobody came to your mind in those questions, then your priorities are out of whack, out of kil off kilter. Your understanding of discipleship doesn't include the necessary discipling piece of helping others follow Jesus. Perhaps you've grown over time through busyness of life, you've grown disconnected from the church, the God-intended greenhouse of spiritual relationships and growth, both your own and others. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, do not be content to be passive in this way. Order your life. Order your life purposefully, intentionally, deliberately, around the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters here. Come to prayer meeting tonight, friends. This is where we spend time praying for these very types of things. We pray for our disciple-making, our evangelism, and our discipling in the life of our church. Why? Because we understand it to be at the very core of who we are as Christians and as a church. Number two, the task. Number two, the task. As you read the New Testament, what sticks out is that after the book of Acts, the explicit language of disciples and making disciples and all of that type of disciple language, it stops altogether. You won't see that word used in the epistles. Paul and Peter and John and, and Jude in their letters and whoever wrote Hebrews, <laughs> they don't use that type of language exactly. Instead, as the early Christians obeyed the Great Commission, both in the, uh, the initial evangelism, the gathering of disciples, church planting, and then in the maturing of disciples in the church, they use other terms that, that capture that, the essence of discipling. So they use words like teach and correct and exhort and encourage and imitate and follow. At the risk of being overly simplistic, discipling, helping others follow Jesus, involves two major components, teaching and modeling. Okay, that's what discipling is, teaching and modeling, speaking the truth and showing the truth. Let's look at a few passages that, hi passages that highlight this. Okay, let's turn to Romans 15. Romans 15, that's on page 949. Romans 15, page 949, Paul is obviously writing to the church at Rome, and look what he says in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Yeah, friends, Paul does not single out the elders here, does he? He's not talking about just the pastors of the church. I don't think he's talking about his thankfulness that the church is able to, to staff their Sunday school teaching program. No, I think he's speaking about the maturity of the body so that the members of the church are capable on their own of admonishing and instructing one another with the word of God. He's talking about a built-in culture of discipling. Okay, quick stop there. Now we're over to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We're just looking at some of these snapshots of discipling in action in Paul's letters. 
Ephesians 4, it's on page 977. Paul is here exalting in the risen and, and, and ascended Jesus. Let's start reading in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I'm just going to pause there for a second. Friends, this, this passage is pivotal to understanding the Christian life. First of all, we see the role of shepherds and teachers whom God has especially called to lead the people of God in the church. These are the ones whose, whose lives are, are notably marked by effective teaching and modeling. What is their role? Verse 12, what is their role of pastors and teachers? To what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, the elders are not the sole ministers, the elders, the pastors, the teachers are equipped the saints for the work of ministry. Friends, who needs a special ministerial title or official position when God has given every Christian the work of ministry to do? What a privilege. And what is this ministry accomplishing? Well, Paul says it's the building up of the body into maturity and into doctrinal strength and stability. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to come back to it at the end. And how is this going to happen? How can believers be firm and strong and not rocked by every headwind of, of false teaching that blows so hard against us? Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Friends, how does the body grow? How are disciples formed? It's when Christians in the church use their God-given gifts to speak the truth and love to each other. Did you see that? Yes, pastors and elders are to teach. But beloved, this, this teaching, this equipping is so that all Christians, all of us, here in the church, might effectively teach one another. We're to disciple one another in love, if we could say it that way. We're all to be about this work of intentionally, deliberately speaking the truth of God's word and the gospel into each other's lives. You know what that implies, friends? What does that imply? It implies relationship. It implies connectedness. It implies time and energy, and intentionality. Now I'll flip over to Titus 2, or just open your worship guide to the scripture reading that Rolando read earlier. Titus 2, page 998. There's a reason we don't do topical messages too often, right? Too much turning. One of many reasons. All right. I think we see in Titus 
what Paul exhorts the, the Ephesians toward, we see it in action. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Titus 2.1, Paul is exhorting Titus, who he had sent to the island of Crete to help install elders in the, in the young churches there on the island of Crete. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, friends, Paul is concerned that right living flow out of right teaching. Again, we're seeing this downstream flow of elders teaching and equipping the church and the church responding by teaching each other. Older men, he, he, he continues on, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, which in love implies ministry, doesn't it? And in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So friends, here we see this, this melding, don't we? This melding of teaching and modeling. As sound doctrine is embraced, it produces holy lives in the lives of believers who then invest themselves in the less mature. Specifically in this case, you see this, this wonderful example, I love it, of older women teaching and training younger women for godliness in, in their home life. And I think it's certainly implied then that older men are to be about the same work with the younger men. If you're an older, more mature Christian, Part of your privilege and responsibility as a, as a believer is to invest in younger, less mature Christians. Brother, sister, are you about that work? Are you marked by that type of intentionality? God has given you a special stewardship to be used in influencing others for the gospel. How are you stewarding the influence that God has given you? You know, even if you're, you're here and you're in your 20s or you're a teenage Christian, uh, I, I think there might be younger folks in the church that you could also steward your influence uh, toward for the gospel's sake. If you're in your 20s, don't you think some of our teens could benefit from hanging out with you? The time that you might spend with them to encourage them in the Lord and point their eyes to Jesus? Beloved, I know the heart of our elders here at Redeeming Grace Church, is for the, the Lord to develop among us continually this, this culture of discipling. Again, I prayed for it earlier, where it's, it's natural, it's expected for members to help one another follow Jesus. We pray for this every single elders meeting. We pray for this. Lord, give us a culture of discipling. We pray for it often on Sunday morning and Sunday night. We don't believe that the Bible, that, that Jesus would have us depend solely on well-crafted programs to get discipling and discipleship done, although sometimes programs can be helpful. Rather, we want to equip our church to actively work for the spiritual good of one another. So friends, there is no prescribed curriculum for this. Did you know that? Other than God's Word, of course. There, there is no one-size-fits-all method it simply requires the active investment of your life in someone else's life. I know some of you are probably chafing at this a bit, at least internally. You're not actively scowling at me, but at least you're, you have questions in your heart. You're thinking, I am just not a teacher. 
What do I have to give? I myself need to grow in the knowledge of the Scripture. Friends, don't we all? Don't we all? No active discipler among us ever became one because he or she thought, Aha! Now I've arrived to the appropriate level of spiritual knowledge and maturity to be able to teach others. No, friends, the disciples among us became a discipler because they trusted in the Spirit to strengthen them, and then they leaned toward relationships in the body to leverage their influence for Christ. And besides that, besides that, none of us disciple others with what we don't know. Realize that? In any area of life, none of us disciple with what we don't know. You would be really dumb to do that. We disciple with what we do know, and we keep growing in what we don't. So we keep studying the scriptures. We keep reading good books. We place ourselves in the path of good teaching, like our discipleship class on Sunday mornings and prayer meetings on Sunday evening, the main gathering of the church. Disciplers simply leverage what they do know for the good of others, and they keep actively seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and what they don't know. Perhaps another objective is, I'm just too new of a Christian to disciple. I, I just, I'm too young as a believer. Well, I think it's certainly the case that in the early days of being a Christian, you'll receive more discipling than what you'll give. I think that's true. But even so, if you're a, a new Christian, a, a, a baby believer, a toddler Christian, let me encourage you to find ways to actively work toward the spiritual good of other Christians. Maybe it's not so much that you're teaching or training another believer per se, but instead you are just intent. You, you have a dogged determination to have spiritually meaningful conversations with another brother or sister. And of course, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, I'm talking about brothers with brothers, sisters with sisters. Here's an idea for you for Christians of any age, of any maturity level, what would it look like after our gathering dismisses for it to just be like a very normal thing in our congregation for our members to be inviting one another or even guests that attend out to lunch afterwards to encourage them spiritually? Now, some of you, as I've been preaching, may be listing busyness as an excuse in your mind about why you're not discipling. But surely you're not too busy to eat lunch on Sunday, are you? Right? In addition to talking about sports, or work, and whatnot, what, what good might happen over a Sunday lunch if you might ask each other questions like, hey, what did the Lord teach you today from the sermon? I'd love to know. What's, what's God doing in your life right now? What's he teaching you about himself? And you discuss together how God is encouraging you and convicting you through his word. And then you listen, you listen to what the other person says. Perhaps you ask a follow-up question or two that might provide further opportunities for good thinking and discussion. Maybe at the end of the meal, you just simply bow and you pray together, Lord, help us to live out these things faithfully this week. You may not think that's discipling, but friends, that is discipling. That's what it is. I, re I received a text from a brother earlier this week asking this, a couple of brothers and I are looking to for an epistle to read together and then discuss with a companion study guide. Do you have any companion study guides you'd like to recommend? Music to my ears, right? That That is discipling. 
It's deliberately encouraging and building up one another in the word. Friends, the forms discipling can take are endless. It could be reading a good good book with another believer over coffee. It could be one-to-one Bible reading or small group study on your back porch or around a fire pit. You know, obviously our our house-to-house groups are in large part designed for this very purpose, not merely to discuss the sermon and to pray for one another, but God willing to catalyze these type of relationships where we disciple one another. It includes one-to-one mentoring. It includes giving guidance and counsel. It includes encouraging those immature or weak in the faith. Before we move on from the, the task of discipling, Remember that discipling not only includes speaking the truth, but living it out. So much of learning from other Christians is not taught, is it? It's, it's caught. This is how it is with your kids, isn't it? They're not only learning from your instructions, they're picking up life lessons from the way that you carry yourself on a daily basis. I mentioned basketball earlier when I was a high school freshman on the varsity basketball team, just happy to be on the team, right? You better believe I was watching how the juniors and seniors carried themselves. I watched them in the drills at practice. I saw how they went about their business during the game, hoping that that when my time came to play, I could step into the the role that they had and perform at a at a high level like they did. Disciples learn not merely by hearing but by watching and by emulating. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He instructed young Timothy, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth as a, a minister of the gospel. Rather, be an example of the believers in faith and love and purity. Again, beloved, this by necessity takes the openness of your life to be watched the openness of your life to be watched, and the investment of your time to fold others in to do the watching. Sisters, perhaps you invite a younger woman into your home while you work around the house. So that seems weird. Maybe outside the Christian world, it's, it's a little strange, but this is what we Christians do, right? You invite another sister in to spend time with you as you fold the laundry or you clean the house. You can check in on, on how she's doing in the midst of your busy schedule. She also is observing a real-life, gritty faith in action. Maybe you meet uh, for a kid's play date at the park, and you let the munchkins run around while you encourage one another in the Lord and pray together. Brothers, perhaps you invite a younger brother to play pickleball, or to watch a ball game, or to shoot guns, or to work on a house project. You open your life to his gaze, and you seek to influence him for Christ's sake. You know, here's what will happen, friends. Here's what will happen when you open your life like this to someone else without trying to kind of manipulate the situation ahead of time to make sure everything looks very pristine around you, right? No doubt the person you're seeking to encourage or influence will see your life's messiness. Your kids will misbehave. They'll interrupt you. They'll observe you interacting with suffering and loss and heartache and frustration, and they will have an opportunity to learn how you respond to those things. You won't be perfect, and that's okay. In fact, that's even, that's even good. Because when you sin, when you sin in a discipling context, you'll then have an opportunity to teach and model what a godly response looks like according to the gospel of grace. That response was not right, was it? 
please forgive me. Here's what I wish I would have done better in that situation. Please pray for me. Praise God for his mercy. Let me fill you in on a little secret of discipling. And I do not count myself as an expert in this by any means. But I do know this. If you'll try to help others follow Jesus, those you're trying to help will so often help you as well. That's just how it works. I always end up being encouraged by the brothers I try to invest in. I'm always learning from them, even as I'm trying to teach them certain things. I'm always convicted as I'm seeking to model. That's how it's supposed to work. Iron sharpening iron, the body of Christ building itself up in love. Friends, this wedding, this wedding of teaching and modeling is the task of discipling. It's how Jesus has called you to help others follow him. Again, to be a Christian is to live as a disciple. And that means being busy about the work of helping others follow Jesus. Is that the work of your life? Number three, the aim. Final passage this morning, let's turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. It's on page 983. Page 983, Colossians 1. I know of no better passage that shows the aim of our ministry in the lives of others. Look at verse 28. Paul writes, speaking of Christ Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Friends, no one ever said this type of discipling ministry is going to be easy. Paul describes it as toil. The word struggling here is the word that we get the word agony from. He's agonizing in this ministry. It strikes me that this type of spiritual labor is part of the death to self required of every disciple of Jesus as we take up our cross and we follow him. Discipling requires time and energy investment, spiritual output, relational risk, potential heartbreak. But for Paul and for us, not only is this struggle and weakness the path the spiritual power. Did you see what he says? I struggle. I labor even as Christ energizes me. This labor, this, this hard toil is the channel by which others reach spiritual maturity. We proclaim Christ now. We disciple now. We spend our lives now. We influence for Christ's sake now so that we might present others mature then. The work of discipling others, it, it naturally occurs in this, in this current day, but it has its eyes locked on the last day. When those whom Christ has called to follow him stand before him fully mature, conformed to the image of the one who bought them. In other words, friends, we disciples, we disciplers, we play the long game. We're investing ourselves for long-term dividends, not short-term payouts. Our hope is the hope of glory. Not in this age, but in the age to come. Let me encourage you, friends, as you've heard this, this sermon this morning on this topic, what would it look like if in 2023, 
you picked out one person outside your immediate family, because I'm just assuming that within your immediate family, that is a way that you're primary investing your spiritual energies, okay? And your, your spouse and your kids, etc. What would it look like for you to pick out one person outside your, your immediate family that you want to intentionally help get ready for this great day? Got him in your mind? Got her in your mind? Seriously, get that person in your mind. Think of it right now. What would it look like? What can you do? What can you do to help him or her grow spiritually? What are the ways that you might begin to strategically fold them into your life to influence them? Friends, you can start this work, this good work of discipling, even today, even this week. May God help us not merely to be faithful disciples, but knowing that to be a faithful disciple, we must be faithful disciplers until the one who called us calls us to follow him all the way home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have given us such a privilege to mirror the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't content to remain aloof or distant from us, but came into our world, called disciples to himself, and trained and taught them how to follow him. Or we know that to follow you is life. Who has the words of life? Where else can we go? The answer is nowhere. And so Lord, help us to be about this good work. And Father, thank you for giving us a community of disciples to help spur us on. Thank you for the local church. Oh Lord, I pray that that you would continue to, to build and establish uh, our church for this good work. Oh Lord, would you convict us in ways that we've been sluggish and slow and, and selfish and encourage us, Father, to, to keep going in the ways that we've been walking by faith. Oh Lord, we want to be found faithful to the end. Oh Lord, we want to endure in this work. Lord, I, I believe that the gospel will go forth powerfully from our church to the degree to which we are faithfully discipling one another. So we understand the connection to evangelism and the church planting and leadership training and all the rest, but it starts here. We ask that you would do this work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.